But with six days uh, to go now, I think if I counted that right, till Christmas, um, maybe you've got your stocking up. Maybe even, does anyone have a nativity in their home? Any sort of little nativity scene? Okay. Does anyone nativity scene look a little bit like this picture here? Anyone got something like that? Very ornate. Um, Over this Advent season, we have been looking at the different characters in the Christmas story. Uh, We've talked about the shepherds and the angel. Obviously, we've talked about Mary and Joseph and a little bit about baby Jesus as well. Um, But we haven't yet talked about the the figures on the right-hand side of the screen, if you can see it. Uh, Those characters who are often popularly referred to as the three kings. Uh, They're popularly referred to three kings. There are just a number of problems with calling them the three kings. Uh, The first is that there weren't three. The second is that they weren't kings. And the third is that they weren't actually at the manger whatsoever. Um, But despite that, the magi, or the magi, depending on where you come from in the world, they are actually really, really important characters in the Christmas story. And so this morning, we are going to look at the magi together. And the question that we're going to look at particularly is this question. Vintage Church, uh, this morning, who is your king? Who is your king? So um, the Magi are actually a very ancient and important group of people. They're first recorded in the history books about 700 years before Jesus turns up on earth, living in an area of southeast Iraq. They weren't Jews by background, but they were deeply religious people who believed in God. They had priests and they had a worship system, but it was a bit more like you know, sorcery and New Ageism than it was like monotheism, Christianity. They brought together ideas of all sorts of different religious thought systems to make their worship system. It was a bit like the kind of Venice Beach of the religious world. Um, But they were really important people. They had huge political influence in the East. They had huge power and they were very well educated. They were people who were leaders in their fields in science and technology and astronomy, but also valued for their spirituality because they could interpret dreams and the stars and those sorts of things. Now, as I said a minute ago, they were never kings. There is no record that these people were kings, but they were king makers. They, through their political influence, through their spiritual ability to interpret dreams, meant that whenever a king was coronated in any kingdom in that part of the world 2,000 years ago, the magi were summoned to coronate the king. No king could be coronated in the east without the say-so of the magi. And you actually read about the Magi in the Bible in the time of Daniel. You know that story, Daniel and the lion's den and King Nebuchadnezzar, when God's people are carried away into exile, in slavery and captivity. There's this guy, Daniel, who has the prophetic ability to interpret dreams, to see the future. And because Daniel can interpret dreams and see the future in a way that even the Magi can't even begin to think about, Daniel gets a job. And Daniel's job is to be head of the Magi. That's what he does. And so through Daniel and through the Jews in that area of that time, the Magi learn. They learn about the prophecies regarding a future king, a king who will come to earth, a king who is better, more significant, a king who's on a different level to any king that they have ever seen before. And it's not just that they learn that there will be a king. They learn where the king will come and they learn when the king will come. And if you've never looked at those prophecies of Daniel, feel free to go home, do a bit of Googling, and you'll see that Daniel's prophecies speak about this coming Jewish king in very great detail. And so by the time that 0 AD rolls around, the Magi, they're watching. 
They're waiting. They are looking out for this better kind of king so that they can go ready to coronate him as king of kings over the whole world. And so as the star rises in the west, they realize the time has come for them to go and coronate the new king. And so we're going to look this morning at the Magi. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, uh, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And we're going to have our reading now. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. Okay. So, Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thanks, sir. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning uh, for the good news of Christmas. Thank you for the coming of Jesus. And as we explore the story of the Magi, would you open our hearts more to understand what it means to have you as our Lord and our King. Amen. So, As uh, the star rises in the sky, or maybe the joining together of a couple of different planets, or maybe the Shekinah glory of the Lord as the Old Testament people saw it, the wise men head hundreds of miles and they find themselves in Jerusalem, but not confronted at first by Jesus, but actually confronted by a totally different kind of king, King Herod. If you know a thing about King Herod, he was someone who had a job title given to him by the Romans, and his job title was this, King of the Jews. He was appointed by the Romans to rule over that area of Judea, Jewish area, and he was there to collect taxes, to put down rebellions. And in his early life, Herod is a really great king. He is a king who builds ports and palaces. He becomes very, very wealthy under the Roman Empire. But yet, 
that little phrase, when power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. In later life, Herod becomes a nightmare. He becomes a complete um, erratic, self-centered, suspicious, out-of-control kind of king. And when the Magi go and see him, they say this, where is the one who has been born, and notice this little phrase, king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Herod goes crazy because he notices that here is someone who has come to take his role, to take his job, to take his power, to take his authority, and it says that Herod was disturbed. Like Now, that word is a massive misunderstatement. What's the word? understatement, right? He is completely crazy. He's angry. And it says that the whole of city is disturbed, which means the whole of the city were nervous and on edge because when Herod got mad, people died. And so Herod assembles his leaders and they hatch a crazy, desperate plan to get rid of this new king who opposes Herod. And I think Herod, right, is the kind of king who we all fear desperately. The thought of obedience to a king like Herod is so abhorrent to us. A king who is dangerous, who is dictatorial, who is unfair, who is a bully, who's got bad judgment. And maybe like in our own lives, we've experienced those kind of kings, like a a teacher, a parent, maybe a boss in our workplaces. And because we have that kind of picture of what a king can be, like we run 100 miles away, don't we? We, we're so quick to look at foreign dictators and people who have absolute authority and to topple them. Whenever somebody in our own life gets too much authority, we run away instead of, we say things like this, I am the captain of my soul. No one else should be allowed to tell me what to do with my life. We have phrases like, I've got this, it's on me. And I think That applies not just to kings, right? It applies not just to governments, but it applies to every part of our life in some senses. Um, Many of you will know Laura and I have been, we've been part of our little local gym for a while. Um, You can't tell and you probably never will be able to if I'm really honest. But, But we go a couple of times a week and, you know, I go to the gym and I put my headphones on and I do my thing and I do some work whilst I'm there. And it's kind of convenient because I can go when I've got an hour spare on my schedule, something like that. But a few months ago, we got an invitation from one of the personal trainers at the gym, who's this guy who was like six foot four and about five feet wide and like built like a house. And, and he said, why don't you come and have a free one-hour session with me at the gym? So foolishly, I said yes. And I went for my one-hour personal trainer session with this guy. And for an hour, he basically beat me to death. <laughs> he put me through my paces. He made, made me feel pain that I have never felt before and used muscles that I never knew I even had. But if I'm honest, when I got home, I thought, actually, that was really good. Actually, I probably gained an awful lot more from that little moment in the gym than all the other hours that I have been hanging, hanging around the gym for the last few weeks. And so he said, well, Ben, why don't you come back once a week and we will have like a gym session together? And I said, no. <laughs> I said no for three reasons. It wasn't actually just because of the pain that left, lingered with me for days and days after that session. It wasn't because I would have to ask you, the church, for, to double my pay to, inf- in, to be able to afford to go to that guy once a week. But it's actually because if I had committed to go, I would have had to be there at a specific time every single week. I would have had to do exactly what he tells me to do. I would have had to go through all the exercises. I would have had to have lived with the pain. I would have had to like, be under his authority. And that's not what I want to do. 
I want to go to the gym when it suits me. I want to do what I want to do in the gym. I want to go when it, fe- when it suits my life, when it fixes the problems that I think I have, when I can do it on my own terms. And I wonder if that kind of idea is so easy to seep out into every area of our lives. You know, I feel like increasingly the story, the narrative that we're fed in our culture is live your best designer life, right? Have the maximum amount of choice that you possibly can have. I realized that when I went to Blaze Pizza for the first time after moving to California. It's like I couldn't believe it. Have the maximum amount of choice, but have the minimum amount of control of your life. Have the maximum amount of flexibility that you can possibly have, but have the minimum amount of authority and commitment to things. Now, whether that's a good way to build pizzas, whether that's a good way to go to the gym, you can debate that and argue that however you want to. But I want to suggest that it's a really bad idea when that is how we think about religion too. It's really interesting that the data will tell us that across the West, atheism continues to be in decline. The number of people who call themselves atheists actually has been declining for a number of years now. But the number of people who call themselves Christians or even Jews or Muslims is not increasing particularly fast in the West at all. But the number of people who say, yeah, I like, I like the New Age thing or I like the Eastern kind of religions. I like to choose a bit of what I want to choose. I take a bit of that. Or I take a bit of that. And I, and I use it in my life for as long as it helps me, for as long as it feels good. But if that thing takes too much control, if it takes too much of my time, if it takes too much of my energy, if it takes too much of my finances, if it takes too much and demands too much of me, what do you do? You just trash it away. And you get something else that costs less. And I think even in Christianity terms, when we run courses like Alpha, so often we'll say to people, hey, what do you think about God? And people say, yeah, I love the idea of God. And even you say to people, what do you think about Jesus as you know, a wise teacher? People are like, yeah. What do you think about Jesus as a savior? Okay, great. But what do you think about Jesus as king, ruling your life? And so often I hear people say, no, no way. I don't want that. It's too prescriptive. It's too controlling over my life. But yet what Matthew is telling us this morning in the story of the Magi is that Jesus is the king. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And he has come specifically to rule over our lives and to rule over our worlds. And I think although part of us finds the idea of someone being in charge of us really hard, I think deep down, most of us know also, we have this sneaking suspicion that we do need a king. The wise men were looking for a better kind of king. And we too, I think, often really deep down are also looking for a better kind of king. I mean, how many of our kids' stories speak about wise, good kings who rule with peace and justice of unfairness? I feel like we, we romanticize royalty. I've discovered in America, you romanticize royalty a lot, especially British royalty. That's absolutely fine. Uh, more even than I do, I think. You know, we, we create superheroes. We create celebrities and we put them high on pedestals. We have life coaches, right? We even occasionally and completely wrongly have celebrity pastors who we model our lives around. And we know, I think, despite that saying which says, I've got this, I'm okay, really deep down we long for someone to put it right. And what Matthew is telling us that in Jesus we have the very king 
that our hearts desperately long for. And so I, I ask you my question again this morning. Which king, which king vintage will you serve? Will you serve a king who's powerless like you? Will you serve a corrupt, angry, despot king like Herod? Or will you serve a personal, better king? King Jesus. It's the biggest question that we ever face in our lives. Jesus is, I want to say to you this morning, a better king. What Matthew is doing is he is contrasting the very best of what it means to be a king in Jesus and the very worst of what it means to be a king in Herod. And there's so much that we could say about Jesus as a better king, right? I mean, gosh, we could talk about Jesus for days and weeks and months and years. We could talk about Jesus who is a powerful king, a king who controls time and space. We could put Jesus as a miraculous king who has the most amazing way to heal and transform situations. We could talk about Jesus who is an eternal king, who was before, is now, and will be forever. We could talk about Jesus as a creator king, as a saving king. But one of the pictures that I love so much in scripture is actually the picture of Jesus as a shepherd king. In verse 6, which Sam just read for us, the Magi say, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's really interesting that if you look through the Bible, that the best kings pretty much were all shepherds. Abraham, Moses, David. And they present this picture of a king who was not sort of like far away and angry and like smiting and judging and just enacting things on people who he had no relationship with. The picture of a shepherd is, of course, a picture of closeness. It's a picture of guidance. It's a picture of loveness and loving and caring and looking after. It's interesting that when Jesus is speaking in John 10, 9, he says this, I am the gate. And what he meant by that is in those times that the sheep would sleep inside this low uh, enclosure with a low wall around it, but there was no gate. And so the shepherd would literally sleep across the front of the sheep pen to stop wild animals getting in and taking and killing the sheep. Again, in verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is a shepherd king born in a stable, not in a palace. The message translation of John 1 says, the word, Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. This is the kind of king who Jesus came to be, a king who knows us, who loves us, a king who comes to dwell amongst us, who lives alongside us, who cares for us, who protects us, who wants the very best for us, who came to this really unknown area. As I said, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come the ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You know, like Bethlehem, it wasn't even on the map. It was such an unknown backwater part of the world. But yet this is the kind of king who Jesus is, who comes in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our insignificance, comes to be with us. And Jesus is faithful He's faithful to you and he's faithful to me in an uncertain world when other people, when other things betray us, let us down, reject us. The promise is that Jesus will be with you. He will be with you in every moment, shepherding you, guiding you, loving you. 
And to be honest, that's called good theology, but it's also absolutely my truth. It's what I know to be true in my life. I could share you a different story probably for every single year of my adult life of how God has shepherded and guided us as a family through all the different things. And I wanted to share a little bit of our story because some of you have never heard it and some of you have heard it too many times and I apologize if you have already. But I want to share it to you because it's, it's just one example of how I think Jesus shepherds our lives. Um, in 2018, uh, Laura and I, we were pastoring three churches just outside of London in the United Kingdom. And um, they were love, it was a lovely place to live, lots of shepherds, lots of sheep, um, lots of old churches. But we knew that, that it was coming to a time when we needed to think about the next step of, uh, of our ministerial life. And so we met with this guy who's a lovely guy who's a bishop in London. And he said, well, you know, what, what do you want to do next? And we said, well, to be honest, don't really know. We've just never had a grand master plan. We just believe that God has always been a shepherd and has always guided our life. And he said, okay, well, that's all very nice and spiritual, but what do you want to do? What's in your heart? And I said, well, there's three things I suppose that have always been in our heart. One is we, we've always loved the idea of church planting, and we love the idea of starting new churches. We've had a privilege of being involved in a number of them over the years. I said, the second thing we love is we love the idea of evangelism and mission and reaching out into the communities and having kind of that way of being a church that looks outwards. And the third thing, that which we've never really told anybody, but when we got married, we wrote down on a piece of paper, hey God, we would love one day to do some ministry outside of the United Kingdom. And I said to the bishop, like, I wonder which of these one of those three that God might have. Anyway, this lovely bishop, he said to us, well, that's really great. Um, I know a lot of people in a lot of countries. Here's the list. <laughs> Off you go. And Laura and I, for a period in the beginning of 2018, we spoke to people in the farthest flung places of the world that you can possibly imagine, from the Cayman Islands to Australia to the Far East to North America to lots of different places in Europe. And to be honest, it was like the most confusing, complicated time probably in my life. I thought, I have no idea how we even begin to work out where we're supposed to go next. But one of the, the people that he gave us as a person to chat to was a guy called Pastor Gare Jones, who had started a church called Vintage Santa Monica 10 years previously. And they'd seen all these different people come to faith. And so randomly, I phoned Gare and said, hey, Gare, I'm, uh, I'm a guy called Ben. I, I just would love to know how you go about planting a church in North America. Could we chat? What I didn't realize is that he was actually just about to get on a plane to come to London. He said, oh, I'm just going to be in London next week. Why don't we have a coffee? And so Laura and I, we went up to London. We met up with him and had an amazing time hearing the stories of this incredible church. Off the back of it, he astonishingly said, why don't you fly to LA? Because we've got all this stuff going on in LA. We're desperate to plant more churches in LA. Why don't you come out and join us? And so Laura and I flew out for a week in the hottest week of the year in 2018. We stayed in this tiny little apartment in Santa Monica and we thought, this is terrible. <laughs> like, I don't want to live in Santa Monica, lovely as it is in Santa Monica. And we heard the stories though of this great church. And Guess said like, well, why don't you, one, one afternoon I've got to drive out to this place called Pasadena. It's two hours away from here. It's going to take ages. And so that always gets a laugh whenever I tell people, like, traffic, it always tells a laugh. And he said, you don't even have to come to the meeting, but there's some people in our church who've been running Alpha out there. One day they dream about having a church out there, but I'm just going to go out and meet with them, see how they're doing. And so uh, you can just talk with me in the car. So Laura, so Laura wasn't even there. I just drove out in the car one afternoon. And one evening in 2018 in the summer, on a very hot summer evening, I found myself sitting in Greg and Irene Wellborn's uh, garden with, backyard with a bunch of you, hearing the stories of Alpha and what God had been doing in that community. And it was funny because it was like the one time in my whole, the whole trip that we had to LA, when I sat there and I thought, I feel like I'm at home. 
Like I feel like God is doing something in this moment. Anyway, Laura and I, we went back to the United Kingdom and we were still talking to churches in different places in the world and we were kind of like pursuing them. After a couple more months, we, we realized that Surprisingly, we needed to say to Gare that we'll come and join him. Now, the job offer was nothing to do with Pasadena. It was to do with a different part of LA. It was to do with planting different churches in different parts of the west side of LA. But we just felt like we need to say, God, we'll, we'll come. We'll join, we'll join in with the adventure. And, and so we did. We told our churches in England we were, we were leaving, and we started to pack up our stuff. But one morning, um, as we were doing that, a lovely older couple in the church came up to me, and the wife said, Ben, I just pray for you regularly and and every time I pray I just have these words in my mind which are that you should bloom where you're planted and I thought thank you I have nothing I know nothing about gardening I know nothing about backyards I know nothing about plants but thank you for the little word that you've given us and I clung onto it I held it in my heart That same lady emailed me on the 1st of December, 2018, and she said this, Ben, um, I'm in a place called Pasadena. Um, You uh, are moving to a different part of LA, but I've just been walking down the main street, Colorado, in the middle of the city center, and there is on the side of a big building is this huge poster this morning, and it says this, bloom where you're planted. Do you think God might be saying something to you about like moving to Pasadena? Now, what she didn't know was that we'd actually been to Pasadena, briefly. What she didn't know was that the little community of people had been meeting with Gare that very same week to talk about a potential of planning a church there in the near future. What she didn't know was that God had clearly been on the move. And so I emailed Gare and said, hey, Gare, I know we're coming out to the west side of LA very soon. We've packed up all our stuff. We're excited to come. But just so you know, this is what somebody shared with us this morning. Now, I expected Gare to say, hey, man, great, come to the west side, let's talk in a year's time. I didn't expect that he would go away and pray and fast with his key leaders and come back on, I think it was the 23rd of December of that same year, 2018, and say, hey, Ben, I think God is on the move. Would you consider going to Pasadena? And so Laura and I, with, on the Christmas Eve of that 2018, we literally turned around and said, yes, we're in. And we were scared. We were shocked. We didn't realize, we didn't really know anyone. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what it was going to be like. But I tell you what, as we stepped off the plane on the 1st of March of 2019, it became abundantly obvious that God had been on the move. Through all the confusion, through all of the sleepless nights, through all of the trying to figure out if we were doing the right thing or if we were just making some crazy adventures to the other side of the world, we realized that God had been preparing something. He'd been working in us through the hard things, through the difficult situations, through the joyful moments. He'd been taking us on a journey for not just one week, not just one month, but probably for decades of getting us ready for an adventure that he had in mind all along. And it's really interesting that those words, bloom where you're planted, have continued to live with us through the years. We were out of the country briefly this summer, and I got an email from Regis, who's here, and he was walking in the middle of the city center, and he said that on the ground in the middle of the city center were these words on massive great decals on the the sidewalk, which say, room to bloom in old town Pasadena. And it's really interesting that you've been praying this week and we've been exploring a new building option in the middle of Old Town Pasadena. And I can't tell you that it's done yet. You need to keep praying harder. But it's getting close. It's getting really close. Now, I don't know what God's guidance looks like for your life. Some of you will have very spectacular big stories that mean moving across the world. 
Some of you will have very normal stories of going through the daily rhythm of being a parent or a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or a worker or a friend. But what I can tell you in my absolute honest opinion, you can do nothing better than giving Jesus the reins of your life. You can do nothing better. I have come to the conclusion that there is no life coach, there is no education, there is no financial plan that I can create for my life which will make any more sense, that will make me any more joyful, any more peaceful, any more happy than giving Jesus the reins. And I believe that Jesus has a plan for your life that is beyond anything that you can possibly imagine or ask. And if you will give him the reins to your life, if you will bow to him and let him be your king, he will transform everything in the most wonderful, beautiful ways. And so I wondered this morning, what response will you make to the offer of King Jesus? The Magi make three responses, which I just want to show you very briefly. The first thing is this, they choose to follow him. The Magi recognized the need for a better king. They had seen many kings before and they knew that it wasn't good enough. And so they journeyed for hundreds of miles to follow the king that they were looking for. And when they found him, not in a stable, not three of them, not as kings, but probably 18 months later, they followed him. It says in verse 12, they continued to follow him and be guided by him in their lives. And I wonder this morning, guys, will you follow the leading of King Jesus? And I don't mean nice religious observation. I don't mean going through the motions. I mean actually giving him your future and your destiny, your career, your family, your life, letting him take the wheel. The second response that they make, which is the same response we're going to do again in a moment, is that they they worship him. It's the highest calling we have as human beings. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and they worshipped him. You know, the truth is we all worship something. Whatever it might be, whoever it might be, we put something up in the middle of our lives and we bow down and we give our best of it. We give our best of our time and our money and our energy to him. But the invitation of Christmas is, will you worship the king of kings? Will you worship him to turn from other kings, to make him king for your life, the primary source of authority that you have? And then the third thing they, do is, they did is they, they offered him their treasure. Verse 11, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now we could look at the huge symbolism in every one of those three things. They were gift, gifts that were costly and sacrificial, gifts that were fit for a king. But they did it not because they had to, but because it was the joyful response to worship and bow down in front of this king and give him their best, their first their lives. And so as we come to a time of prayer, that's my question again this morning to you is, who is your king? Who has the reins of your life? And will you bow to the best king, the only king, who can bring peace and joy and love to you? So let's pray.